only one rule. Don't eat the fruit on that tree, God told them, because if you do, you'll think you know everything. You'll stop trusting me, and then death and sadness and tears will come. You see, God knew if they ate the fruit, they would think they didn't need him, and they would try to make themselves happy without him. But God knew there was no such thing as happiness without him, and life without him wouldn't be life at all. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly she didn't know any more. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste. That's all. And you'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some. And Adam ate some too. A terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. And it wasn't a dream. <laughs> it was a nightmare. A dove flew from Adam's hand. A deer darted in a thicket. It was as if they were frightened by something. A chill was in the air. Something strange was happening. They had always been naked, but now they felt naked and wrong. And they didn't want anyone to see them. So they hid. Later that evening, as God was taking his walk, he called to them, Children! Usually, Adam and Eve loved to hear God's voice and would run to him. But this time, they ran away from him and hid in the shadows. Where are you? God called. Hiding, Adam said. We're, we're, we're afraid of you. Oh, did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? God asked them. Adam said, Eve made me do it. What have you done? God asked. Eve said, the serpent made me do it. And terrible pain came into God's heart. His children hadn't just broken the one rule. They had broken God's heart. They had broken their wonderful relationship with him. And now he knew everything else would break. God's creation would start to unravel and come undone and go wrong. From now on, everything would die, even though it was all supposed to last forever. You see, sin 
had come into God's perfect world, and it would never leave. God's children would be always running away from him and hiding in the dark. Their hearts would break now and never work properly again. God couldn't let his children live forever, not in such pain, not without him. There was only one way to protect them. You will have to leave the garden now, God told his children, his eyes filling with tears. This is no longer your true home. It's not the place for you anymore. But before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children to cover them. He gently clothed them and then he sent them away on a long, long journey out of the garden, out of their home. Well, in another story, <laughs> it would all be over and that would have been the end. But not in this story. God loved his children too much to let the story end there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him. Lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you, and when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. This morning's reading is from Genesis chapter 3. It's the story that we've just seen up, portrayed up on the screen so vividly and so beautifully. Genesis is the first book in the Bible and it's chapter 3 and beginning at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God 
as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if we haven't met, um, my name's Johnny, and I'm the, I'm the curate here. Um, and if you're visiting, a huge welcome. And if you're part of the furniture here, um, also a huge welcome. Uh, and the last few weeks, we've been at, in Genesis, um, which has been a pretty, pretty mega time, hasn't it? Um, Genesis is, is not always super straightforward. And uh, we've been grappling with some really big things, uh, as we've read this morning. Um, and Tom, a few weeks ago, spoke on Genesis chapter 1, where we thought a little bit about what it looks like to be made in the image of God, and how that impacts how we rest and how we work, and how, as we fulfill God's vocation for our lives, we find purpose and joy and meaning. And last week, we thought a little bit about marriage, um, and how... In Genesis 2, marriage is painted as a way in which God meets our deep need for companionship and connection, and how it's an illustration of our relationship with Christ. It's this beautiful picture that God gives us. And we touched on some really big pastoral issues, didn't we? And maybe they're still fresh in your hearts. Maybe they're still fresh in your minds. And so Keep having those conversations, keep praying about those things, keep supporting one another as we journey through life, um, which invariably has challenges in our relationships. And today we're going to think a little bit about Genesis 3. We, we had the video, which pretty much I was like, well, I don't need to give a sermon anymore. That was, that was really good. Um, 
And we're going to be thinking about what it looks like to live in a broken world and how sin impacts our lives and our relationships with one another. It's a kind of the Bible's way of telling us where it all went wrong. Let me pray for us because I think we'll need it. Um, So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its honesty. Thank you that it doesn't shirk the difficult things that we face as humans. And I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that we would see the sin in our lives. But I pray that you would help us to see that there is hope for the future. Thank you that you have come to restore us and fix the mess that we're in. So Spirit, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think we need to look particularly hard, do we, to see the brokenness of our world. We flick on our TVs at six o'clock, or you might get the BBC News app on your phone, and the media is full of injustice, of hatred, of conflict, of lies, of pain. And we witness the aftermath, don't we? Suffering and death. It's been on our screens very recently, hasn't it? Um, In all its glory, and not in a good way, um, of conflict in the Middle East. We see lots of injustices right before our very eyes, but it's not just on our screens, it's in our homes and it's on our hearts. And we all experience, no matter who we are, we all experience sin in some way, whether it's our own mistakes or the mistakes of other people, either directly or indirectly. And sadly, the truth is that we're all hardwired to make ourselves number one. You might that's a bit harsh, Johnny. But we're all hardwired to make ourselves king or queen of our own hearts and our own lives instead of giving God the rightful place. And you might be wondering, I actually came to church this morning for a bit more of an uplifting message than that. Is that the best you've got? Well, Genesis 3 helps us understand what it means, how we've got to this point. Where did it all gone wrong? How did we as humans get to this point? Well, I think Genesis 3 has hope for us this morning, not just about the sin in the human heart, and the ramifications of it in our world, but also it points towards a future for us that is just like Genesis 1. And so there's good news this morning as well as wading through some of the the, the challenging things that we have to deal with because of sin. And so keep your Bibles open if you have them with you, have them on your phone, or if you have one that you grabbed on the way in or you brought one, but keep it open in Genesis 3. And we're going to just go through it together and try and understand it a bit more. And so sin starts with a lie. The devil who appeared as a serpent was this crafty, cunning, and deceptive person. And we read elsewhere that the devil was this fallen angel who, want, who was proud and wanted to be worshipped himself. And so the, the devil is using all the tactics in his armory, which were lies and temptation. And we see that where in the first few verses where Adam and Eve are tempted. And Adam and Eve, as the pinnacle of God's creation, had been given this huge responsibility to image God and partner with him in stewarding the world and creating this perfect vision that God had given for flourishing. And the devil suggested that they could have this 
wonderful upgrade, that they could become like God himself, knowing good and evil. He was the ultimate marketer. He makes it sound quite attractive, doesn't he? But it wasn't free. This equality with God, to become like him, wasn't free because for it to happen, they needed to disobey him. They needed to say, do you know what, God, I'm not interested in what you said. Remember back in Genesis 2, God had said, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, or when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so by obeying God, by following his plan for their lives, it showed that they had a relationship with him. And that relationship was one where God provided, and it was enough to satisfy their deep needs. But Eve was tempted to provide something for herself. She wanted something greater. There was this promise of becoming like God. And actually, the reality is that it's not something that we can handle as humans. We're finite beings and we cannot handle it. And sometimes there's things that we're better off just not knowing. And that was what God had understood. And so we see the first glimpse of our pride, which is at the heart of sin. We think we know better than God. And the story of humanity is a story of a people who rebel against what God's told us is best for us. And we decide that we can actually dis discern what's good and bad for us and that we know best. We want to be the ones that make the rules, provide for ourselves and find fulfillment away from God. And the tempter does three things, three things, and he questions three things um, about God. The first one is he questions God's word. Verse one, did, he, did God really say? Did God really say that? It's quite subtle. It starts quite subtle. But it plants doubts in the mind. The devil starts to twist God's word. And secondly, in verse four, he questions God's integrity. You'll not certainly die. God lied to you, Adam and Eve. God lied to you. He can't be trusted. Of course, they, would, they, they wouldn't physically die when they made this choice immediately, but spiritually, they would. And this is when death entered the world. And thirdly, he questions God's goodness. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. The devil's helping them or wanting them to think that God's there to wreck their fun and enjoyment. He doesn't want you to become more like him because he might get jealous. He hasn't got your best interests at heart, guys. He's not good like he says. And the tempter wanted them to stop trusting in God. And he concentrates on the one thing that God told them not to do and denies the truth of the consequences. And like any good lie, I don't know if you watched that TV show, Would I Lie to You? Um, always the best ones that people fall for are the ones that have an element of truth in them. And I think the devil uses that same ploy. The fruit did look good and their eyes would be open, but the temptation wasn't really worth wrecking their perfect relationship with God and with each other. And it reflects our attitude in modern life, I think. Just because the Bible was written a long time ago doesn't mean that it isn't pertinent today. If it feels good, do it. That's 
that's what our world says. That's what culture is telling us. If it feels good, crack on, do it. You'll have a great time. Don't worry about tomorrow. Enjoy yourself. And I, I'm sure you've all experienced it where you think when it comes to sin, that it's very attractive, but it leaves you empty afterwards. And the consequences of rejecting God and his plan for our lives were catastrophic. When the woman saw, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And also she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And I think there's two big consequences of their sin. There's obviously lots more, but we can't cover everything. I recognize I'm going to leave a lot out of this because we haven't got like 20 weeks. Um, but two big things I think I want to draw out is one, that they brought shame. Up until this point, they had nothing to hide. We thought a bit about that last week. They had nothing to hide with God. They were naked, which was representative of the fact that they could be fully open with God and he knew every part of them and it was totally fine. But now they feel exposed because their relationship's broken. The trust that existed is now broken and there's shame. And I think we all know what shame feels like to some extent. Perhaps you've done something in your life that you just deeply regret and you feel a deep sense of shame. Maybe you've been made to feel shame because of the actions of someone else. And we can be fearful in life that if people find out what we're really like, what will they really think of me? Will they really treat me the same? And shame, I think, profoundly impacts our ability to trust people fully, like we see here in Genesis, because we're conscious of our own failure and we're scared and we don't always want to be fully known. I recently read an interview with Kyle Walker, who is a Manchester City footballer and plays for England. And it was recently in the press that he had a marital affair. And He's, he came out and uh, apologized um, and has been going through uh, lots of uh, kind of a, a process with his, with his wife. And I want you to read what he said because I think it really illustrates something of what shame looks like or, and, and just a one way of articulating. He says this, what I've done is horrible and I take full responsibility. I can't begin to think or imagine what Annie, his wife, is going through. I've tried to ask her, but there's pain and hurt. The man that's meant to love, care, and be there for her did this. And there have been days in this ordeal where I've just wanted to curl up in a ball and go to sleep. And the only person to blame is me. I have roles and responsibilities, and I've made stupid choices but I need to own up to my mistakes. My actions have caused a lot of pain to a lot of people, and I'm sorry. Now, I'm, I'm aware that that might bring up something for some of you, um, and I'm sorry for that. Um, but I wanted to help illustrate something of, of what shame can look like and feel like. And Kyle, I think, recognized that when we sin, our actions hurt one another, at the very deepest level, 
and we need to take responsibility. And for him, there was this deep sense of shame and, de and a desire to hide and escape the mess that he'd made. And I don't know uh, if you've ever played uh, hide and seek with a little kid. Um, it's it's kind of like a daily occurrence in my house. Um, and I'm like, not again. There's only so many places you can hide, right? Um, and so, um, I absolutely love the fact that they just, little kids just don't get the concept of hide and seek, um, where they often just like stand there and like play inside. I'm like, are you, are you not gonna go and hide somewhere? Are you, are you just gonna stand there? And they're like, if they think they shut their eyes, you can't see them. Um, and sometimes they'll maybe go and hide like half behind something, half, half not, so just like really awkwardly. And then you go and you do the whole like, oh, I'll count to 10, ready or not, here I come. And off you go and you're like pretending that you don't know where they are. And so you're kind of like, oh, are they, are they in the Bible? No, they're not in the Bible. Are they in the fridge? No, well, kids are never gonna hide in the fridge, are they? Um, and you try all these like silly places and then eventually you go, there's only one place left where they'll be. And then you go and then they jump out at you and you're like, you really haven't got this. I meant to find you, not the other way around. Um, and I think the second thing for Adam was, was some, we, had, we talked about shame, and then I think the second thing is fear. Adam was so afraid, and rather than to talk to God and face up to his mistakes, both him and Eve hide. They go and hide. But God knows exactly where they are. And here's the thing. God does that with us. He's like, oh, where, where are you? Where are you? And here's the thing I want you to know, I want you to clock, is that God's the one doing the looking, not the other way around. And despite being the person who's been wronged and rejected, God's the one who takes the initiative and goes after them when they're hiding. And I think this is the glimmer of hope in the story that we'll get to in a moment. And just like the video in the, of the kids earlier, whenever they opened the sweets and they all came out, and they, they were very quick to blame other people, weren't they? She told me, or she listened. He told me to do it. Classic. I'm sure you probably uttered those words yourself in some way, shape, or form, trying to get out of it. You know you've done something wrong, but you try and pin the blame on someone else. Adam in verse 12, the woman you put with me or here with me, she gave me the tree or the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Not only is he blaming Eve, but he's actually blaming God as well. You, you give her to me, it's your fault. Adam totally abdicates responsibility and we see it in life. We're quick to blame other people for our mess and we're slow to take responsibility for our own choices. And Eve in verse 13, the serpent deceived me. Just like Adam, Eve shifting the blame. Despite it being true. And the consequences of their choice, of their kind of rejection of God and his word, and his goodness and his purpose for their lives was, there was judgment in it. If God is God, it's impossible for him to remain true to himself and then tolerate anyone taking the throne off him. 
After all, God has provided all that Adam and Eve needed to thrive, but yet it was thrown back at his face. And if God is to deal with sin in an appropriate way, he has, there has to be consequences. Otherwise, God's not just, is he? And so God introduces a curse on the serpent and humanity. And life is now going to be tough. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be painful. And we saw in the story where they were, the people were kicked out of the garden. And for the first time, death entered their world. But with the curse comes a promise. And I think there's hope on the horizon. And you're thinking, I'm glad. Because it's not a great picture, is it? It's not a great picture to be painted, but it's true. And God promises that Eve will have a child that will crush the head of the snake. We read that towards the end of the passage. Breaking the curse of death and separation. It, it's amazing that only three chapters into the Bible where it all went wrong, we already get this explicit promise that God was going to save the world. And it's this promise that there would be a child that would come from Eve that's going to save us. Jesus. He's the one who would crush Satan's head by taking the curse of sin off us and onto himself. And even more, Jesus overcame death that was earned in the garden by rising from the grave. Jesus not only reversed the curse earned by sin, but he also gives us a way to conquer sin in our lives now. You see, unlike Eve, we fight sin by trusting that Jesus is enough. He's done enough, he's provided enough, and will always be enough, and you can stop trying to earn it. The victory is won. And my prayer is that the Spirit would show you the God who provides for us abundantly, and that he doesn't want us to go near those things that are destructive for us, the lies that the devil gives us. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking, that sin and that fear and that, that shame that comes with it. I don't really want that in my life. I know that God's got better for me and I really struggle with this. Well, let me tell you that Jesus can take that shame and that fear from you, that Jesus can carry that. You don't need to carry it anymore. And so my encouragement is for you this morning to give it to him. That brokenness, maybe the thing in your life or things in your life that you carry that you don't want to carry anymore. Jesus can bring freedom and he's the only one who could do it. And just as I finish, Revelation 21, towards the end of the Bible, we're going from one end to the other, and gives us this picture of what life will be like when Jesus finally removes the curse that we live under. It says this in Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be there, be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. 
And unlike the devil, this great deceiver, the ultimate liar, God says in verse 5, these words are trustworthy and true. God's people will be back in God's place, living under his loving rule and blessing without shame or fear, without lies and deception, without pain and suffering, without brokenness in our relationships and in our world. That's a world I want to live in. And I bet that's a world that you want to live in too. And we can, through faith in Jesus. And so as we seek to, to follow Jesus, if you're like, yeah, I'm all in, I want to follow Jesus in my life, but don't think that the devil's going to give up on you easy. Those lies still exist about who God is, who we are, and what's good for our flourishing. He will still pepper you with lies. Don't think that it's not going to happen. He'll still tempt you to disobey God, to be your own God and live life how you want. But Jesus is far greater, and he has the victory. And through his resurrection, he can give you the victory too. And we'll reign again with him in a life that's fully restored. And so why don't we stand? If you're, if you're able and you'd like to, So we're just going to take a moment to reflect on this and invite, invite God to continue to speak to us through his spirit. And you might want to inhabit whatever posture that looks like, whether internally or externally. Maybe just receive from God and let him meet you in the depths of your heart. Maybe, maybe you need just to, this morning to, to be aware of the sin in your heart and how it might impact you and other people or how it is impacting you and other people. Maybe you're on the flip side of that. Maybe you're all too aware of your brokenness and you don't need to hear it anymore, but you need Jesus to come in and deal with it. And so... Maybe you need to give him some stuff this morning. Maybe you need to give him that shame and that fear. And maybe you're hiding this morning. Maybe you're hiding from God. Maybe he's, he's looking for you. God is looking for you. Maybe this morning you need to do what the little kids do in my illustration and just jump out and be like, here I am. Maybe, and lastly, maybe you just need to say sorry to God. Maybe you just need to repent of, of the sin in your heart and just go, do you know what, God, I'm sorry for this. Take it from me and give me life to the full. And so I'm just going to leave a moment and I'm going to pray. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would meet with us this morning, that you would show us Jesus you would do business with us. So we invite you into our hearts to do whatever you want to do in us.
So, Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to take the curse for us. Thank you that you deal with our sin and our shame and our fear. And we pray that you would help us to live lives where we trust you, that we, we trust your word, we trust you, that you want what's best for us. We're sorry for the mess that we make. I pray that you would be restoring us back to what it's like in Genesis 1. Thank you that you're doing that. And ultimately, there will be one day where your world is, is made perfect. But until then, we pray for your kingdom to come here on this earth. And in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, 